Closed Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock materials. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the Party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Find our cute and sustainable fashion picks at the Silver Lake Flea and on Instagram at vino.vintage. And Shop Journal, upcycled, handmade, and vintage clothing and accessories. One woman owned and operated in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They love details, bright colors, and everything extra. This month, they're donating to Fair Fight Action. Getting dressed should be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. hates the idea of a brunch dress. Don't worry, you'll find out more later. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. As always, today's episode is just jam-packed with excitement. It's the final part of our conversation with Jillian, and to be honest, I miss her already. <laughs> we'll be talking about racy vintage Polaroids, $8 yogurt parfaits, and a very strong case for brunch as an analog for fast fashion. And our friend Jessica is here to tell us once and for all what's happening when we sell our clothes at Buffalo Exchange. But first, as always, it's time to thank our latest Patreon supporters. First is Caroline Cunningham. Now, as you know, I stalk all of you patrons to see what you're all about. And while I'm not 100% certain that I have the right Caroline here, I'm pretty sure if I'm right, she has one of the cutest babies I've ever seen. Thank you for your support, Caroline. Next is Sonia Lucian, who 
I'm happy to say is a cat lady, my favorite kind of person. And she's part of the Orphan Kitten Club alongside the Kitten Lady. If you're not super into animals or the animal rescue scene, it might sound like I'm just arbitrarily stringing together cat-related words, which to be fair, I have been known to do. But if you're like myself and you're really into animal rescue, then you know how honored I am to have Sonia as a patron. Thanks so much, Sonia. Also, I don't think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but actually my 100% dream job is to someday have an animal rescue of my own. That's I just love animals so much, and I've been volunteering in animal rescue since I was a teenager. It's just really, really important to me. And as I've mentioned, we have three cats here at Close Horse World headquarters. Brenda, we trapped her in our alley in Philadelphia. George, we trapped her. Yes, it's a she. We trapped her in Portland. And Ray, we didn't trap him, but he is from the shelter there. And they're all the best cats ever. Anyway, (laughs) back to patrons. Last but not least, our new friend, Sarah Dreer, who you might remember I talked to in the last episode about all of her different high school personas. She's a new Pegasus sponsor with her business, Wide-Eyed Vintage. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for talking to me last week and for becoming a patron of Close Horse. If you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. And don't worry, I'll share a link in the show notes because who's like actively sitting and writing down that link right now? No one, right? (laughs) This week, I released our first ever Patreon exclusive episode about Victoria's Secret Well, Victoria's Secret as a metaphor or really just a literal example of how the industry is super out of touch because, because why? Because it's run by wealthy old white men. See, you want to hear all about that, right? Can I just say for a minute that my favorite thing about working on Clothes Horse is all of the amazing new friends I've made in an otherwise, you know, lonely and frightening time. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And the most amazing part about it all to me is that you all like me as I am because I get to be fully my weird nerdy self here on the pod and y'all still like me. (laughs) It means so much to me. I say this a lot, but you know, I grew up the weird poor cancer kid who was good at math and way smaller than everyone else. And that sort of imposter syndrome got worse for me as I got older and went out into the world and, you know, I just met a lot of people who made me feel like I should never, ever reveal my true self to them. So it's almost like I'm starting this new stage in my life by just being myself and it being okay. And I hope all of you are starting to feel that way too during 2020. Like this can be the first year of the rest of our lives or Okay, maybe it would be better if it was the last year of our old lives and then 2021 was like the new year. I mean, because that kind of sounds like a better way to start your new life, right? Enough of all that feelings talk. Let's move on. Speaking of new friends, our new friend, Jessica of Vino Vintage, reached out to me a few weeks ago because she knew that we were all kind of wondering exactly how the Buffalo Exchange works. We've definitely brought this up a lot, right? She was kind enough to have a little phone call using the Clothes Horse hotline to answer all of my questions. And so this is a phone call. So once again, the sound quality will be a little different than usual. 
Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your experience at Buffalo Exchange. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you about it. I love the podcast. I'm a huge fan. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you reached out to me. I felt, I was like, wow, finally, I'm going to get all the inside info that everyone wants to know. Right. I know. I've heard you mention it a few times. And I was like, I'm just going to reach out to the show. And yeah, I'd be happy to tell you all the behind the scenes. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about, you know, what you did at Buffalo Exchange, how long you worked there, why you're an expert. Okay, yeah. So I worked there for about two years, um, from 2016 to 2018, so a couple years ago. And I started as a entry-level buyer is what they call it. Um, So pretty much you buy or you get trained how to buy from, like, the public. You can also be um, a cashier. You can work in the fitting room, all that stuff. So it's kind of a wide range of things, but buyer Mm -hmm. was, like, your main um, title. And then from there, I went to associate manager. Um, and then I did that for a couple months. And then my last position with the company was store manager. Um, wow. Everything. Yeah, yeah. I really loved it. But towards the end, it's just different leadership. Like, I got a new district manager and this was not good. So I'm yeah. just leaving. But I really learned a lot. I, like, met a lot of great friends that I still talk to, um, like, to this day. So that was really cool. That's the best thing about jobs like that. That's how I feel about all my retail time, too. Like, the best Mm -hmm. thing is all the friends who are still my friends that I met then. Mm -hmm. So how do you choose what you want to buy versus don't buy? Because I think a lot of people think it's arbitrary, and I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So it's a little bit of both. I mean, as if you asked me when I was working there, I would say, no, like there's, you know, so many like things about like training that we like to do. We study like, you know, trends and current fashions and what retailers are, you know, having their store currently and all that. And to a certain extent, it is true. There is a lot of like training that goes into it. Um, but it is also can be pretty biased as far as like personal preference, you know, whoever your buyer is um, and all that. So, pretty much like the main thing that they kind of start you with is like style of a brand. So is it a current style? Um, and then also like the condition of the item, like how's that? Um, and then you go from there as far as like pricing. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, they're really big on like, you know, knowing what current trends are out there. Um, they pretty much want like what's in the malls right now um, in their store too. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of hard because, you know, people go and buy things like that they want to wear and sometimes like you know you've covered this in the pod so many times but you know they wear it once and then they're over it so that's really what buffalo thrives on is people who just wear things you know brand new top shop dress or whatever uh, they wear it once for their birthday and then they just want to sell it and they can you still buy it in the store but now it's at buffalo for half the original price and whatnot i mean i'd never thought of that before but you're 100 percent right mm-hmm. and that kind of like it's like Buffalo Exchange succeeds when you just become addicted to fast fashion, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely. So when I was working retail, um, I can't say where, but it was in Portland, mm-hmm. sometimes people would come in from Buffalo Exchange and walk around and take a whole bunch of notes in a notebook. So what oh, were they really? doing? <laughs> um, so they would go to your store and, like, take notes from – oh, I see, I see. So – Oftentimes, they encourage, especially like new buyers, um, to do like 
they have like official like documents. It's like a style trend report or like there's another one I can't remember though. But like you literally go and like look at a style or like I don't know, um a trend or like if it's like summer, like what's hot for summer and like you literally go and take notes and then you take it back to your store and like you search our manager and they're like, Oh my gosh, like this is great. This is what we need to buy. This is what you know, whatever Purple Twenty One has right now. So this is what we want. Um, so that was probably it. And they're not really like, you know, trying to like steal your company info, but it's more like <laughs> oh, we, if we see this like at the buy counter and it's like, oh, it's a balloon sleeve and like all these retailers have balloon sleeves. So we have to buy it then. So that's probably mm-hmm. what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's what I figured. I People yeah. would get that out of shape and I'd be like, I think they're just studying for work. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so something I've always wondered is, you know, my my greatest experience with Buffalo Exchange was in Portland where like both stores were always super busy, both with like mm-hmm. customers buying stuff and people selling stuff, like always a line of people in line to sell. And I was always wondering, like, when you start each day, is there like a ceiling in the amount of stuff you're allowed to buy? Or is and is and conversely, like, is there a minimum amount of stuff you need to buy in a day? Or is it just like if it comes in and it's good, buy it. If it's not, don't. Yeah, so there isn't really a cap, um, even because there, there would be some days where we would buy more than we would even sell, and like you don't want to do it all the time, obviously, because you just want to have space for anything. But mm-hmm. it was encouraged just because you never really knew how your selling day, or your buying days would be, as far as like good inventory, because you can have a lot of people coming in and trying to sell stuff, but if it wasn't like stuff you wanted, you would just you know not buy anything from them. So um, the buy line was always open. They always were like encouraging people to come and sell, which is good. It was kind of um, like a double-edged sword almost like, yeah, you need people to work the sales for to like sell your merchandise, but you also need people to like be behind the buy counter to buy the stuff mm-hmm. and turn it around quickly. Um, so no, there was never a cap. At the end of the night, we would do like a percentage, like what are the dollar amount we bought versus the dollar amount we sold. And if it was under, like, a certain percent, um, then you were, like, good. If it was, like, either you sold, whatever, $3,000 and you bought in, you know, $2,000, you kind of wanted to the next day maybe even it out a little bit. But there was mm-hmm. never, like, a, a cap or anything like that, no. So how does the pricing work? Because I already mm. – it's like you've already opened my eyes to this idea that stuff that comes into the store ideally is stuff that's still, like, full price in the mall stores. Like – how do you determine the price? Do you as the buyer do that? Or I mean, I know there's like computers there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, definitely. Like you as the buyer, you decide the price. So a lot of people do think that because like you're typing and they're like, what are they typing? So they're like a formula or something. But there's really not. All they're really typing is like your info and then like they print the tag as like they're buying it in. So it's like simultaneous. Um, so they're like typing in the price that they just want to put on the tag. But as far as like coming up with the price point, that's all on the buyer. So there is like tiers of like pricing that they like go over, like with training and stuff. And like, I think there was four tiers, maybe five, if I remember correctly, but it was like tier one would be like your fast fashion, like super cheap. And then two would be like your more moderate um, price point and then so on and so forth. So usually though, like a good rule of thumb would be like, if it like even had the original retail like tag on it, and let's say it retailed for a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. even us selling it at fifty would fifty dollars would be considered like high price point for us, um, unless it was like super desirable and like 
like really like brand new and we knew it was going to sell within like that day. Um, mm-hmm. But usually it would probably be like $30 would be like a safe price point that like would be fine at all, like all the buffaloes. So they try to like have it similar at all the buffaloes, but you know, they vary from like location to location. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, like, you know, think, Oh, I'm going to get, you know, X amount of dollars for this. I bought it for a hundred dollars. I want at least 50, but you know, if we price, if they price it for 50, you only get back 30% cash of that or 50% store credit. So really the people selling really aren't in it to make money. Um, it's more just like we kind of get fast cash for your items. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the pricing is totally up to the, the person buying from you. Hopefully they know like the brands. A lot of times, like, especially new buyers, if they don't have a manager there or a trainer, they don't know the brand that like underprice it. And then there'll be this whole like learning bar. They would call them. I'm like, why did you price like this? Where could we have like made more money on this? And just, like that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, they don't really just decide the price point right then. That's so crazy. You must have to memorize so much stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it probably gets easier over time, but that's, that's like a hard job to just like start, you yeah, know? Definitely. Yeah. When I first started, I was like, oh, I know fashion. I love clothes, whatever. And then I started working there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know nothing about all these brands that I'm supposed to know. And definitely, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. oh my God, I don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, like there's so many stores and you need to know how much mm-hmm. stuff costs and like what they have in there right now. And I mean, that brings me to the next question I have, because I would see this a lot, is the people who come in with, like, just Ikea bag after Ikea bag full of clothes. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that annoying? (laughs) Totally. Well, it really depends on, like, the person. So I had a a manager one time be like, oh, it's the millennial picker. And it would be, like, you know, someone younger, like, millennial age, and, like, just always the blue Ikea bag for some reason, no matter what, always the blue Ikea bag with, like, just a bunch of folded, like, vintage, like, mainly 90s, like, T-shirts and, like, more streetwear, which is totally cool. And, like, oftentimes we would buy it, but it was always funny. They'd always have the Ikea bag. Always. always <laughs> every time it'd be like, oh, do you know what that is? Like, do you know that, like, brand? You know, like, you know, just all, like, every single piece is kind of funny. But um, yes and no. If it was really good stuff that, like, you know, would sell really well, then – it was more just like, oh, cool. If it was stuff that, like, you know, just for everyone one stuff that, like, you know, like you talk about in the pod that just they washed it once and now they can't wear it. It's like, well, we don't want it either. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it was a lot of that. Then it was, you know, just take a lot of time to look through everything. I think from what I've heard from one of my friends is they have, they're more strict, especially with COVID now, and, like, how many bags you can bring in and, like, scheduling an appointment and all that. So I do think that's good because it was it was hard on like the buyers just you know buy uh, you know the next person the next customer just for hours because they buy as long as they're open so um so yes and no sometimes it was annoying sometimes it was okay but um yeah, so much stuff <laughs> I mean, so many clothes. I feel like so many times I went into the Buffalo Exchange in downtown Portland and there would be mm-hmm. someone in there trying to sell something who was like up to shady business like oh definitely trying to yeah. sell stolen stuff or like mm-hmm. I don't know it was just always there was always one person there who was up to no good mm-hmm. like <laughs> Did a you single have... jacket with the tag on it yeah ex- exactly yeah. exactly and when I was working at another retail store that was sort of like up the street you know frequently people would come in steal a whole bunch of stuff and immediately just go down the street to Buffalo Exchange and sometimes mm-hmm. the Buffalo Exchange people would call us 
or we would mm-hmm. call them and be like, hey, this person's probably going to come in. This is what they have. And they would, like, seize the stuff for us, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Yeah, definitely. You know? Um, did you did you ever have to deal with that kind of stuff? Um, not directly, but there were definitely times where we would, like, turn stuff away if we were, like, suspicious, if it was just a weird situation, or mm-hmm. if there was, like, sensors on some of the items, and that would be, like, a huge one. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, unless, um, unless the business actually, like, called us and was, like, hey, you know, a bunch of, like, whatever, Lululemon, like, leggings got stolen last night, like, be on the lookout, then we couldn't really, like, you know, hold anything for them. Right, like that. right. But, yeah, we were definitely um, told to, like, not buy stuff that was, like, sketchy and just, you know, turn them away. Um, yeah, or, like, in – I have a friend who works at the Vegas store, and I guess it's, like, in downtown Vegas, which is kind of seedy sometimes, like, some places, I guess. And mm-hmm. they would come in with, like – or people would come in with, like, stolen, like, just – cases which was always sketchy that they were like oh, so bad that is yeah. super sketchy so like do you different stores have like different buying needs because I've been to Buffalo like like I use Portland a lot as an example because there's two locations and they kind of had two like the product that was in them was kind of really different I guess mm-hmm. I would say like the one that was on the east side had a lot more like vintage stuff and the one downtown had a lot more like not expensive brands, but more like brands you would know. And I always thought that was interesting. Like, is that coincidental? Do different managers of different locations try to target different kinds of products? Yeah. So it definitely goes off of like your physical location and like where you are, um, like, or who your customer is too. Cause you know, sometimes you'd be surprised like, yeah, Buffalo is like more inexpensive than like, you know, regular, like, mall stores and stuff, but we still get people who go in just looking for designer or just looking for Mm -hmm. vintage. Mm -hmm. Um, That definitely plays a part in it. But, yeah, I worked at two SoCal stores, and one of them was – they're both in, like – well, one was Orange County, one was L.A. County, but the Orange County one was definitely more, like, streetwear and, like, a little bit of designer, but not too much. And if we did get it, it would still sell, but at, like, a lower price point. And when I Mm -hmm. went to the one in L.A., we can get the same, like, designer handbag and sell it for, like – you know, maybe like a hundred dollars more and it would sell like super quick. So that kind of goes on it too, like who your customer is. And then even like depending like your physical location. So like one store was like kind of near the beach. So like swimsuits would do well there, like shorts, summer dresses, stuff like that. So yeah, definitely different stores have different needs. Um, so it does, it does play a part in it for sure. And so uh, this is the thing that I've always wondered about. Like, do you, have like reports that show you the kinds of things that are selling I because I guess the tags that you print out just have the price and like maybe the category right they're not like Mm -hmm. that specific so you couldn't be like oh I just looked at our reports this week and we're selling a whole bunch of free people so let's try to bring in more free people stuff like could you get that kind of view into what was going on Mm, not really Unless, like, say, a person, like, a sales associate who's working, like, the cash register, and, like, they notice, like, oh, we sold all the people we got today, or, you know, mm-hmm. three of the things or whatever, um, then, like, they could just tell the manager and they can kind of go off of that. But as far as, like, official reports, it was all based on categories. So it would be, like, uh, weekly, it would be, like, oh, we sold, you know, this many tank tops, this many tees, this many dresses. Um, 
and that like what price point was like the average mm-hmm. um but as far as brands no they there was no way to like um monitor that on like the computer side of stuff that's too bad because that'd be really cool mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> no definitely it's a lot easier to buy yeah for computer. sure that's what I was thinking I wonder if anybody is doing that like maybe maybe Crossroads I don't know because Crossroads I feel like it's so much more like brand based than mm-hmm. Buffalo Buffalo is more about mm-hmm. like the style right mm-hmm. yeah I would say so so the other question I have for you is what's the deal with all the new stuff? Because there's so oh. – the last time I went into Buffalo Exchange, it was in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. there was – like everything I picked up was new, it felt like. It seems mm-hmm. like there's a lot more of that. Like where does that stuff come from, and does it sell well? Yes. So I was actually surprised when I first started working there because I had no idea um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's actually, like, just stuff. I think – I don't know exactly where they go, but they have buyers, like, actual buyers, not, like, self function buyers, but, like, <laughs> buyers that go to, like, L.A. Mart or, like, I think how you mentioned how you would go for, like, Nasty Gal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's down to the San Pedro Apparel Mart. Yeah, and it's all just we, – we would call it new, new merchandise. We would call it new merch, and we would get it shipped at least at my stores. It was – like three to four times a week, depending. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And like boxes, I mean, not like crazy amount of boxes, but anywhere from like three to 10 boxes, depending on the time of the year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's all new stuff, but all the clothes, um, shoes and accessories were all just like fast fashion, cheap stuff. And we mm-hmm. all knew that as employees, like we knew we like, mm-hmm. oh, like more new merch. We have to process it, put it out there, but we would just mix it in with everything else. Right. And when I first started working there, the tags for the new merch were a different color. And then later. I remember that. Changed, yeah. They changed it to white and then they changed it again to look, I mean, I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but to look closer to like our other tags. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We kind of hated it just because we had to like process it and like take it out of, and like so wasteful, like typical, like, you know, fast fashion, it comes in like a cover box and like a plastic box and like the plastic hangers that we wouldn't even use. They're just all get like thrown away. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They don't recycle, by the way. So um, we shouldn't get them to recycle all that stuff. But um, I mean, almost no one does. Like, I guess I've never talked yeah. about that on the show, but based on my experience working for many different companies, including companies that would seem to be more likely to care, all those mm-hmm. poly bags and stuff just go in the trash. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It was all just new cheap stuff, and then for like um, Halloween, they would get like new Halloween costumes. And at least at the stores I was at, it never did well. We would only have so much left over, but they always pushed us to have Halloween costumes, and so they weren't even cool. Like it wasn't even secondhand, like handmade vintage Halloween costumes. It was like you know the cheap stuff you can get at like yeah. Why would yeah. okay? That's really interesting to me because I hadn't thought about that because I have noticed in the past few years that at Halloween Buffalo Exchange is full of Halloween stuff and like maybe ten years ago they would have a rack of some used stuff that was either like an actual costume or stuff that could be a costume you know like kind of like what the Goodwill mm-hmm. does but I yeah. began to notice that there were actually just racks of like brand new Halloween costumes and like tights and spooky makeup and stuff like that and I always wondered yeah and I was always like does that do well for Buffalo Exchange because it seems like if you are in the market for like a brand new costume you probably wouldn't go to Buffalo Exchange you would only go there for like used stuff to turn into a costume I thought that was so weird I mean 
Goodwill does that now too. Like, well, all the thrift stores mm-hmm. have like brand new costumes for sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, my stores didn't do well, but we had a manager transfer from, I think, San Francisco. And she mm-hmm. was shocked at how much, like, we had so little Halloween. So I guess it's very store to store. But yeah, I, we all hated it because we had to like make space for it in the store that was already packed with all the stuff and then have to box it up after the season ended and like either decide to save it or. We would call donate it, but really we would send it to like our outlet stores. There's one in Arizona and one somewhere else I don't remember. Um, and then they would sell it at like a lower price and then I don't know what they would do after that. But, um, but yeah, Halloween and then also for holidays, they would get a lot of like gifty stuff, which mm-hmm. I guess they did better than costumes, but kind of like the stuff you'd find at like, like Spencer's or like, um, <laughs> You know, or like Forever 21 and like the bins, like the stuff you grab, yeah. like stocking stuffers. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was all new stuff too. So yeah, I that's that. Yeah. I hate it. There's enough of that stuff in the world already. Mm-hmm. So I've never done this. I always like if I take my stuff to Buffalo Exchange, whatever they don't buy, I take with me for no particular reason. I just do. Mm-hmm. When people leave stuff, it gets donated, right? Where? Yeah. Does it go? So there was always, like, we would work with, like, charities. I can't remember, like, what they are now. But it would be, like, certain days of the week um, would be one charity, and then other days would be another one. And there would be someone from that charity would come and, like, pick them up. Like, it would be a huge, like, industrial, like, laundry bin, like, we would have at each store. And Mm -hmm. once that was full, we would be, like, just couldn't take anymore. Um, And then they would come and just fill up trash bags and, like, take them to their van. Or sometimes there would be, like, a donation, like, truck, like, delivery truck kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, they would just take them. I don't know. I think they, like, got approved through, like, corporate, like, who they actually were. Because, to be honest, it could have been, especially the store I transferred to, the guy who would pick up donations was, like, there for years and years. So, I'm assuming he was from a charity, but to be honest, I never really knew. Um, but, but, yeah, they would just take them. And it was only supposed to be, like, clothing and, like, shoes. But um, if people, like, just didn't, yeah, didn't want to take it and we had space, we would just throw their bag in there and, yeah, just let it go. But a lot of the stuff that people would bring sometimes was just bad. Like, just in that Goodwill couldn't sell it, we wouldn't be able to sell it. And you're just like, okay, we'll just donate it. So, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered about that. And I feel yeah. I was wondering, like, do a lot of people choose to just leave their stuff there and donate it, or do a lot of people take it? Because, like, when I'm mm-hmm. in there and I see the people with like all the IKEA bags, they don't leave anything mm-hmm. behind. No, it's very it's a mixed bag. Some people would would just like clean out their closet. They were you know whatever they don't sell, they're going to take to Goodwill anyway, so they'll just leave it. Mm-hmm. Or it's the reverse, and it's like stuff that like they'll try to give to like family or you know or they just want to keep it because they were offended we didn't buy it or whatever <laughs> I don't know but um, um but yeah so I would say like 50 50 they would leave it or they would take it um <laughs> or just they didn't want to carry it back to their car which is also like you know after lugging in five bags I mean I get it yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah totally totally so do you I I talked to someone else who worked for a different resale chain about this this week uh when so if someone comes in in a really cute outfit, are you more likely to buy their stuff or not? Or does it not matter? Do you mm-hmm. care? I wouldn't care, but if it was the reverse and if it was, like, 
like a sketchy looking person or something, I think I would have like my guard up more versus like someone in a cute outfit. I've heard people say like, oh, if they look real, if, like they look fashionable, then I'm more likely to buy it. That didn't really affect me, but I could see that definitely playing a part in it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she has good style. Like her stuff must be good, even if it was just like average stuff. You know? Right, right. Um, yeah, so I, I could see that having, yeah, having it. <laughs> Those are all the burning questions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've just, just always wondered, like, was it because I always am like okay I gotta look good to go sell this mm-hmm. stuff just in case but then I was like am I doing all this work for nothing <laughs> no it has a little bit and then also like if people were like known pickers like resellers uh-huh. we would kind of get annoyed at that because we'd be like I don't know why we would get annoyed but it just kind of be like oh like they're just trying to make money off less of the stuff they didn't sell like on their online shop or at the flea market mm-hmm. and this year mm-hmm. you know so there's totally kind of, like yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I think yeah, everybody's going to be for... everybody's going to be really excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was I was like I'm just going to reach out to her. I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah, I feel like I know you. I feel like we're friends. I'm like, <laughs> I get that. I feel that same way about all the podcasts that I listen to. I'm like, what? They don't know me. They don't know how much we have in common. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jessica, for taking the time to talk to me. I hope I asked all the questions that the rest of you had, but if I miss something, reach out to me and I'll see if we can get Jessica back on the horn. I've also recorded another conversation with another friend, Haley, who worked for a different secondhand clothing store and has a lot of experience selling on Poshmark. And I'm hoping to work that conversation with her into the next couple of episodes because it's a much longer convo, so I'm going to have to split it up. I am actively collecting stories of people, perhaps like yourself, who are involved in different parts of the secondhand clothing game because it's like a rapidly growing industry and all of the, you know, retail industry publications that I read pretty regularly, a lot of analysts are looking to secondhand to be the savior of retail. And I have a lot of feelings about how that fits into retail while still benefiting sellers. So if you make a living selling secondhand via Poshmark, eBay, Etsy, Depop, flea markets, whatever, I'm probably missing something, please reach out to me. You can email me at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can call the Close Horse Hotline, 717-925-7417. You can leave a message, maybe just saying what you wanted to say, or we can set up some time to record our call like I just did with Jessica. I'm also really interested in collecting stories about any issues you have with Poshmark and Etsy. Like, in what ways do you think they have changed over time? How have they made it more difficult for you to make a living as a reseller? These are the things I'm thinking about as more and more big retailers are chasing after the idea of doing secondhand on their own. I think that could have a big impact on so many small business owners right now. So let's talk about it. Okay, moving on. The late 70s and early 80s brought a new type of show to network television. The soapy lives of the wealthy and fabulously dressed. I mean, and Westerners loved it immediately. I'm talking Dynasty, Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest. Every character was wealthy, beautiful, and 
often up to no good. And the biggest of all these shows was Dallas. I think now is a good moment to tell all of you that Dallas is like a big show in my household. (laughs) A few years ago, I told Dustin that I was nostalgic for shows of that era. And I think it was probably back when I had mono and I was just spending like months in bed, basically. And even though I hadn't really seen any of these primetime soaps of the 80s as a child, because, you know, I was too little to watch them. I loved all of these silly plot lines and epic catfights and gorgeous costuming. So we started watching Dallas. Probably helped me get over mono, to be honest. (laughs) I'm sure there's a correlation there. I literally bought every season of that show on Amazon Prime. And there's a lot of seasons. I want to say like 15. And I'm afraid to know how much it ultimately cost me, but we watched every last episode. So that was a couple years ago when we were still in Portland. And this year when things were just, you know, depressing, stressful, just, we were just so unhappy. We started watching it again, like from the very beginning. And it felt like hanging out with an old, super fun friend. We're kind of on a break right now because we're focusing on the crown instead. Uh, I'm assuming when we're done with that, we're going to get back to Dallas and the two shows have a lot more in common than you might expect. <laughs> so Larry Hagman played J.R. Ewing. I'm sure you've heard his name, right? Not Larry Hagman, maybe, but J.R. Ewing. And he was the conniving, scheming, but kind of sexy oil baron slash mega villain. In 1996, he told a reporter for the Desert News, quote, I think Dallas brought the downfall of the Soviet empire. He said that back in the 80s, he had a friend who was a Russian film director who used to trade caviar for videotapes of Dallas, which he would then smuggle back into the USSR. Hagman said he took over the entire Dallas catalog, whatever it was up until that time, a couple of hundred shows, and they would bootleg the stuff. People would tell me that they'd seen it in Russia and say, why don't we have that all over here? Why can't we have those cars and that glitz and all that stuff? You mean people actually live that way? Because they thought it was all propaganda from the Americans. They actually saw Dallas and the way we live, and they wanted that. And I think it contributed a lot to the downfall of the USSR. Of course, Hagman was also willing to admit that the Ewing lifestyle was, quote, not exactly how people live. But he said, I think it contributed to it. I really do. And I kind of love that story. And I was like, well, it makes sense to me. Strangely, more than 20 years later, I guess actually 25 years later, Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, which is a big band of the 80s, told a reporter a similar story about a conversation with former leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. What Gorbachev was saying, and this is the quote, what Gorbachev was saying, it was Dallas, the TV show, Somebody managed to get a VHS to work and broadcast it to part of Russia, and they thought, hang on, that's how people live in America. Well, whether or not any of this is true, it does say something about the mere idea of wealth being sort of like the fuel for capitalism. Even though most people are losers at the game of capitalism, that's the truth, and only a tiny, tiny fraction of people get to be the winners, The idea that you might eventually win 
kind of keeps you on board with capitalism. It's like people who know that the odds of winning the lottery are so, so microscopic, but they still buy a ticket every day. The idea that these shows that were essentially the most conspicuous consumerism with a heavy splash of drama could lead to the downfall of a communist society, well, it makes sense to me because it promises you a ticket to play the game of capitalism, where, much like the real lottery, the odds of winning are extremely low, but just the feeling of having a chance gives you some hope to keep going. I've been thinking a lot about the story of Dallas and the Soviet Union as I've been working on these consumerism episodes, so I just had to share that with you. And if any of you are interested in starting like a Dallas viewing club, please holler at me. (laughs) Okay, let's get into our final installment of Jillian. You said something today as we were texting, as we do about lofty ideas, that (laughs) you said you were like, I feel more into the term essentialism than minimalism. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is great. We have to talk about this. Essentialism being the driving decision maker for what you choose to buy or not buy along with your ethics, of course. And I found this quote before then that I was like, this this fits together so well. Um, Ariel Bernstein, who's a daughter of refugees, wrote in a 2016 Atlantic piece, for my grandparents, the question wasn't whether an item sparked joy, but whether it was necessary for their survival. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just loved that, that when we talk about things sparking joy, we're still talking about buying a lot of stuff that we don't need. And really talking about like what we need to survive and be comfortable, right? Like we're not saying, hey, get rid of all your coats, turn off the heat, sit in the dark. We're not saying that. (laughs) Beyond that though, like I think even beyond the like necessary for survival or like the joy sparking, I actually, as you were reading that, I started to think about um, the Velveteen Rabbit, (laughs) I think, (laughs) because- well, that, this, this is where like my lateral thinking went. And because it, it ties in with what I was saying earlier about um, I have a friend who for sure owns a shop and buys a lot of things and sells a lot of things. But she said something once that like I, I turn over in my brain every once in a while where she's like, well, if I have something in my life and I'm like touching it every day or touching it multiple times every day. I want to like love that thing. And I think that like when we think about our relationship to things in general, like there's a lot of like sentimentality tied into it and like really intangible stuff that we're always trying to like project upon and like infuse into physical objects and clothing and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's like an aspect that like when you think about like, I don't know, when you think about like something that's an antique, like why is an antique so precious? It's because like probably like at the time that that, you know, like say you always find those like um, they look like tubs like or like a like a baby cradle that they're made for um, working dough in. They're like kneading Mm -hmm, trough. mm -hmm, You see (laughs) anything like that and you're like oh, someone's selling it for like $600, $2,000 or whatever. And then you're like, oh, well, but you know, like think about like the life in this thing. The fact that somebody like 
for who knows how many years every day or like, you know, once a week made their bread in this thing, you know, like that is like a kind of value in an object that we, we really have like become both divorced from and obsessed with, I think simultaneously, because I think that like a lot of what people try to do with this kind of like cinematic, um, kind of creating, like I put it in the document, it's like creating this sort of like synthetic heraith sort of feeling, which is this Welsh word that doesn't Mm -hmm. have a translation in English, but it means this like nostalgia or homesickness for like an experience that you've never actually had. (laughs) And I feel like that is like, there's a kernel of that though in this like hole that we always feel like we're trying to fill with like objects and clothing and stuff because... I mean, when you think about like how many pictures go up on Instagram in a day, but then you're like, well, what's the value of those pictures versus like the one photograph I have of like my great grandmother? You know, right, like, right. Well, I mean, no I, <laughs> I do think I mean, photos are a great example here. You know, like a photo used to be this rare thing that might might happen to you once in your lifetime. Yeah, maybe, became, maybe. Maybe, right? And then they became a little bit more common where you might see someone taking some photos at special occasions, right? Because developing film was expensive. And then film went away and everything became digital and suddenly we're taking pictures of our breakfast. And there which- was also that that really special like Twilight Zone of photography where like you could get your photos developed, but then Polaroids were like the only kind of pictures you would ever take of like a dick pic or like a dirty yeah, picture. Yeah, totally, totally, them, yeah. You didn't want to take them to like the photo mat and have the like, you know, spotty teenager leering oh, at you. I'm not sure if I've ever told you told you this story. This is definitely a digression, but you know, Please. my my mom is was Marie Kondo before Marie Kondo existed, meaning that like we never held on to anything ever. Even things you might say like, hey, how about some photos of our childhood? Nope. Throw them out. They take up space. So we just like – she was constantly gutting our house of our possessions and every time we'd move, all of our stuff would go away. And so all I have for my childhood is one photo album of some pictures of my brother and I and they even cut off around the time we're like maybe six or seven. Mm-hmm. And so this is like precious to me, right? This is all we have. It's the only documentation we have of our childhood. Your early childhood, yeah. Yes. It was the kind, you know, like how photo albums used to be where they were like the plastic thing that you would peel off and you'd stick the photos Mm -hmm. in and then lay the plastic back down. Well, one of them was coming a little loose and I adjusted it and out fell to, oh my God, this is so (laughs) horrifying, (laughs) two Polaroids of one of my mom's husbands, her third husband, standing against a wood paneled wall wearing of course where else would he be standing where else would he be standing wearing tiny zebra print underwear <laughs> that reminds me of that um controversial calvin klein campaign that they had to oh pull my god totally totally Phillips, where it's like it's literally like it's the the wood paneled wall and like the underage looking kids totally oh my god totally i just cited uh, that recently in another conversation with someone but I yes loved it i was like because it hit me at like the perfect moment where my little adolescent brain was like this is it this is like what i want this is what sexiness <laughs> what is apparently <laughs> my mom already knew that okay so anyway out of the bleeding edge so, but Polaroids were expensive too. So like, even when you're like, listen, we're going to take this sexy photo of you in your new underwear in front of this wood panel wall, like, 
Like we want to make sure that we really nail it because we can't get through a whole box, you know? (laughs) The reason why Maplethorpe was such an incredible photographer was because he did everything on Polaroid for the longest time. And so he really needed to get his shots like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, totally. It's super expensive. So anyway, back to essentialism as a way of life. Uh, you had a really great example around shoes. Yes. Okay. So um, on election day, I ate some acid and I was like wandering around my house. Sort of, <laughs> as like, you do. As you yeah, do. Yeah. No, because it, it really does like I there's no there's no other thing that like works like an antidepressant for me than like doing some psychedelics and just kind of I don't know. It just it really opens up my empathy for myself and sort of just like it, it, it gives me like a more um I don't know exactly how to put it like I, I feel like I I kind of dilate and can like appreciate my environment and like my state and where I'm at like in a much more just like present way <laughs> it's just I find and so one <laughs> of the things that um that I noticed when I was sort of like drinking some red wine and then like I was eating some chips and I had my two pairs of shoes that were next to each other by my door and it's like this pair of leather essentially they're like leather flip-flops from fry so they're like leather sandals and then I have this pair of Uggs that I got for five dollars it out of the closet I never owned Uggs before and so when I saw these Uggs I was like I you know it's better late than never I guess like I missed the the first round of Ugg fever but they are they're very warm and they're super comfortable and so I sort (laughs) of had like these two pairs of shoes next to each other and they both were also like I mean I had like a candle burning and like they're both this sort of like buff color so it all just felt like I was kind of like living in this like really simplified like adobe um like cat people of the outer realm sort of <laughs> sort of environment and I just uh-huh. looked at them and I was like huh so I've got like my warm weather shoes and I've got my like house shoes that are also suitable for really cold days and then I have a pair of blundstones that I can wear for like literally any activity under the sun and I was like do I actually need any more shoes because like at this stage I don't really I have like three other pairs of shoes but I don't actually put them on or ever use them so I'm like maybe this is it and like maybe the kind of brand loyalty that I'm into is like blundstone because I wear the shit out of those shoes and I only need to replace them like once every five or six years, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, no, I'm I, cool with that. <laughs> I mean, I loved when you reached out to me about that because I'd have, I'd have a, had a similar thought recently. I mean, I don't have a ton of shoes anyway. I've, I haven't been much of a shoe collector. I kind of just wear them until they disintegrate because I'm an actual like walking around person, you know? <laughs> but it made me think about this whole cultural trope that women should have a lot of shoes. I mean, we can look at the sex in the city as an example, right? Mm -hmm. And I was telling you how, you know, sometimes Justin and I like to watch um, Married at First Sight, Mm -hmm. which is both terrible and great. And a common occurrence on this show is that these new husbands who have just met their wife, their now wife, go to the wife's apartment and the closet is just filled with shelves of shoes. Shelves. And there's a lot of there's a lot of hemming and hawing and hand wringing over how 
these shoes will all be moved to their new mutual apartment. How they will be accommodated within the house. Yes, yes. And the, the man is always annoyed and the woman's sort of defensive. And the one thing I will say that these shoes always have in common is that they are all incredibly ridiculous. Like mm. the kinds of shoes that you can only wear for a short period of time and then your feet hurt, right? right? And you never actually see the women wearing any of these shoes on the show. They're wearing like the same sneakers every day because once again, like these shoes are ridiculous. And then I started thinking about how not only is there's this trope that women should have tons of shoes and there are even like subscription services that will sell you tons of dumb shoes every month, mm-hmm. but there's also a side industry that is made of gifts you give people because they're shoe lovers, like little, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Little tchotchkes that yeah. are like a high heel that's bedazzled and Christmas ornaments that are shoes. And yeah. Or like those little, cards. Those, those little jingly things you put on your wine glass, but they're like shaped yeah, like shoes. They're like yeah, shoes. Yeah. 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 And I was just like, why? Like if you think yeah. clothes are bad for the environment, let me tell you, shoes are 10 times worse for the environment. Well, and the other thing okay? is just, like, as you're talking about that, it just, like, fills me with, like, this sense of just, like, pure sadness that, like, what your friends know about you and, like, identify you as, as an individual is, like, well, she loves shoes. You know what I mean? Like, that just, like, speaks to a larger uh... problem where, like, people don't take the time to like learn about the interior lives of other people where they're just I like know, oh look at this tea towel that says shoe queen on it she'll love it she uh, loves shoes which also like for me i feel like involves that like cat lady trope where people i feel like there are plenty of people in my life that are like she loves her cats this is perfect for her uh, <laughs> like, i know i know i trust me as an as a three cat, cat household i i know like a legendary cat lady if you will i i feel that pain where i'm like no i love animals i love cats I don't love cat merch, okay? No. <laughs> That's not my aesthetic. I'm a, it's funny to me because I think, I mean, you would know I'm a very aesthetic person. Mm. Like, I, like I have very clear, you walk into my home, you can see what I'm into and what I'm not. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I don't decorate with a lot of cat-themed stuff. Well, you do have a few uh, little ceramic cats. Yes, but they're all vintage and from the thrift store. And that sort of began in the same way you're talking about where people would be like, oh, you love cats. I saw this cute ceramic cat at the thrift store. And I'd be like, you know what? That is cute. Okay. I guess I like thrift store cat figurines, and now I have like a hundred of them. Well, and that reminds me of my dad's dad, my grandfather. Like, we knew so little about him. Like, he wasn't really like that into making himself available to get to know. (laughs) And I just remember every time it was like his birthday, we just give him another fucking bulldog figurine. (laughs) And it wasn't even because he enjoyed bulldogs. It was just because he went to Yale. So it was like, oh. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's like, I mean, but that's happening all over the country right now. Frequently, like, this is people, like, you know, Black Friday's just around the corner. People are firing up to buy all kinds of novelty shit for people. Yeah, like for the shoe lovers in their lives, for the people who went to Yale, for people who have a cat. (laughs) So... Thinking about this idea of essentialism, I think that leads into like you and I were sort of talking about like what's the future of consumerism? Mm-hmm. Like how do we do it better? And I mean, I think that all starts with living within your means, which is painful for a lot of people because what are your means really? Yeah. That's a hard reckoning you have to have with yourself. I took a 
business class a couple years ago, the amazing instructor in Portland. And she was like, you know, for people really discussing and knowing and believing and accepting their true financial situation is like most people's number one fears. The first place my mind goes is like when you hear these true crime stories about family annihilators and you realize that like, I think 90% of the times that these men kill their entire families, it's like because they lost their job and they couldn't bear to tell everyone that they lost their job. And they're like, so oh, I'm going to go sit. Like, I think what's his face? The, uh, the really famous one, um, list i think his name was the guy the connecticut guy the guy that they ended up catching on like america or on unsolved mysteries or whatever but he like got up every day dressed like he was going to work like sat and read a newspaper at the train station in his car came home and just like but to him the idea of like his family finding out that they couldn't keep living in a certain size house was like worse than them all being dead and like that is that that is a poison in our culture <laughs> like that is really fucked up it is it is or even in this class i was in people were like i'm afraid to check my credit score oh jeez and and i'm like yeah i hear you it's it's super scary but like this is all about coming to terms with where you are what you have like what you have to spend and what your future can be and kind of grabbing the bull by the horns and you know changing this for yourself and so i think living within your means slash accepting what your means are is really important. And I know it's painful in this world where what you do and what you have is supposed to be who you are. Like that's why a man would kill his whole family rather than admit he lost his job. That's an extreme version of it. But so is going out and buying new clothes every week on your credit card and carrying forward this huge balance, you know? Well, so is agreeing to attend your friend's, you know, bachelorette party in palm springs even though you know that it's gonna like put a thousand dollars on your credit card you know and these are all like i think that's like a broader question about our expectations as a culture of like what life is (laughs) you know and like and i think that for for better in some ways i think covid is like helping us to get a better grip on that in some ways like because I think before like when I think about maybe part of the reason why in like 2019 people felt so compelled to spend such money on like the birthday week month itineraries was because like it actually the way that like work is designed in our culture it's actually pretty fucking hard to see people, you know? So it like when you get to actually get together with someone, it feels like an occasion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's problematic. And that deals to the whole other ball of wax in our culture about like, you know, the way our cities are designed and the fact that like some cities you literally can't survive in without a car, you know, and just shit like that. And the distances that we live it from one another. And so, like, when we get into this time now in COVID where you're like, shit, you know what's really important is, like, spending time face-to-face with people. And, like, I've been, mm-hmm. like, for the past year or so, I've had times where, I'd, like, if I know I'm going to go see someone in person, I just, like, leave my phone at home. Because I'm, like, literally nothing will happen on my phone in the next, like, mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. hours that is more important than, like, actually being with this person that I'm with. And so I think that, like... 
I think that if, if we get to like that sense of like the scale that we're living on and whether it's really designed for humans or whether it's been designed for these like fads, like automobiles <laughs> and like the internet, like, I think that's, you know, like where's the cart and where's the horse? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's really true. I say this a lot on the show and I really believe it, but I do think that 2020 is a great chance for us to reset. I think so. Yeah. And understand ourselves a lot more. I I mean, I want to believe that. I'm going to be really pissed if I see everybody out taking brunch photos in six months. I'm pissed if I <laughs> we, we, we can talk about brunch. We'll get to it. But oh, we'll like, get to it because we have a lot of strong feelings about brunch. We do. Yeah. <laughs> it's becoming a very de- divisive issue in these trying times. It is. And I kind of love it because I it had been on my mind for a long time. And then finally, one day we were recording an episode of The Department and I went off about it. Mm-hmm. And the number of people who have reached out to me and were like, thank you so much for saying what I've been thinking for years made me feel like, oh, maybe I'm not this weirdo fringe lunatic that I always thought I was. It was actually really good. Yeah. It's good for me and my mental health to be like, oh, wait, we were all pretending we liked brunch. Yeah. Anyway. We're coming. Brunch is coming shortly. It is. It's around the corner. <laughs> but that goes back to this idea of like taking a breath, ass- assessing what we really have and what we truly need. And I feel like something you see people doing all the time on social media is they'll post a photo of something expensive they want to buy. And it's like, is this need or is this want? And you're like, uh, I mean, it's obviously want, right? You, you knew that when you posted yeah. it. You're just wanting people to like tell you that you're worth it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's less about you buying that thing and more about people being like, girl, you deserve whatever you want. You. Or that whole like yeah. treat yourself idea. And like you sh- – listen, yeah. you should treat yourself sometimes, okay? But not every day Absolutely. or every week. Like – and I can say this having been at, at points in my life where I, all I could do was treat myself to cope with my life. Mm-hmm. And I was like – I have all this stuff that I hate. It's like a burden for me as a person who's constantly moving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing about that too is like, I think sometimes we get very disassociative about what we actually feel about the things that we're buying and experiencing. And like, sometimes we like work ourselves up into these sort of like froths about like certain stuff and then you get it and then you're like oh you know it's that letdown it's that sort of Mm -hmm. like it spikes and then there's like a really hard come down from it and it's all about the dopamine and everything else but like I do I do think like when people really like assess their purchases and even like a lot of these experiences that like you're surprised by how kind of like how they leave you cold like I was talking to a friend of mine recently and it was about a birthday thing this friend had had like a milestone birthday within like the past couple of years Mm -hmm. and so did did plan like not a full you know like month-long extravaganza but there were like a couple different things and they were like okay you know like no pressure like if you can come to this that's great like this is where it's going to be like you know and did say to me like you know it's weird I like made this effort and it was all these things that like I was pretty sure I would enjoy and then like afterwards I was a little bit like "Eh," about it you know and yeah I I I know that feeling (laughs) yeah and I think that there's also that aspect of like 
trying to like micromanage our experiences, which certainly is played into by social media because it's all about the like pictures or it didn't happen or like mm-hmm. sort of staging your experience or being so like hyper aware of the way the experience might look that you're not actually experiencing it. Like, I think it's always just kind of remarkable when you when you talk to people and you ask them, like, what's like something you've done in like the past six months that you just felt was like really enjoyable? You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, it's it's surprising, I think, to hear what people actually say, because sometimes people are like, oh, you know what it was? It was like just this day when I like decided to like just take a pressure off of myself and like just allow myself to just like you know watch the British Bake Off all day long and I just like had a really good time you know what I mean yeah yeah I know and I think you know you can't Instagram that so how will everybody know you had a great day you know we need to like we need to get rid of that you know when I think about social media and how it has totally changed our experiences probably Mm -hmm. for the worse I think about the one and only time I went to the Broad in LA which oh I hate the bro. yeah it's there's a million annoying things I have, about it. I have a story I have a story about the broad too but I want to hear yours okay so I went to the broad you know my friends and I were all very excited we got up really early to get in line it was you know you have to when it first opened you really had to game the system to get in mm-hmm. and there is a lot of amazing art in there that you've probably only seen in photos although if I could give one piece of feedback it's that it's all crammed together so it's like mm. it's it's hard to enjoy what you see in there and most of it is like the big ticket items of art so it's sort of like and eh, it could be better. I don't know. I could go. That's a whole other. Yeah, no, I, I, whole... That, yeah there's the, there's the Kuntz factor. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Oh my God. There's, factor, yeah, exactly. There's... From an... And there is the feeling too, where it's, it's a little bit kind of like hit parade where it's like, there's nothing like that novel or like, yeah, going on it's like, either. it's like, here's the greatest hits of contemporary art. And like, you already know those pieces. I want to see something else. So anyway, yeah. The thing that drove me crazy, I had a very negative time there. I'm going to say that. Like, me too. Okay. I hated it. <laughs> Every single person who was in the museum was just only there to take photos of every single piece. And I saw multiple couples or groups of people who would walk up to the piece of art, not look at it, just take a photo on their phone. And then they would they would gather around the phone and look at the art on the phone. And I... I think that there's actually like some kind of a Tumblr or something of that of like uh, people looking at pictures of art on phones at like the Louvre so and like every terrible. <laughs> it was so terrible, and of course they'd also be standing in front of the art, so you couldn't actually look at it, and like it just everything about it was so infuriating because no one was actually there looking at the art and appreciating it. They were coming up with social media content, and the number of people yeah. who I saw only look at the art through their phone was it was so sad staggering yeah yeah. well and that's so my story about the broad real quick is 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 very um of a piece with what you were just talking about but the thing that will like haunt me forever about the broad is being in the kara walker room Mm -hmm. do you know where it has like she did all the sort of like um they're like shadow cut out i'm already getting i'm getting anxiety about this because i can already (laughs) see how this can go wrong and i will definitely leave i will add a link to kara walker's work 
in the show notes so you can understand why I'm getting this building sense of dread. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I can describe it just in case people, but you should look at her work. I mean, she's just really It's some really of the best artist. stuff that's there, I would say. I would I would certainly put her like at the very top of the heap, like top three yeah, things yeah, that I saw there. For sure. And so beautiful, like really like provocative work. And it's it's to do with um Kara Walker is is a black woman herself and it's like to do with slavery and um the whole kind of like long torrid history of um white supremacy in this country and, and much, much else. And um I just remember being in that room watching like white couples take selfies. Oh, in front of I work, know. And I was just, I was just <sighs> like, oh, get me out of here. This is like, this isn't funny. Like, this is a parody, but it isn't funny. It's like, oh, like, yes, seriously. I knew that's where that story was going to go. <laughs> yeah. Like, you almost, you almost could have just finished my yeah yeah I was like I know this is gonna get really gross the other thing that's like sort of the opposite of that um that's like an upbeat thing to say about trying to take photos of experiences is that I always really appreciate how when you see like a fucking spectacular sunset you can't really get a photo of it with your phone I know I love love that. that I love that especially in LA where the sunsets are always like so majestic and yeah You'll see a constant flood of them on Instagram, but it never conveys it. I love that. Never does them justice. I I love it because it's like, this is like what it means to have an experience and just like, this is on the experience's terms, Mm -hmm. not on Mm -hmm. like your mediation of the experience's terms. Totally, totally. The last thing I would say about the future of consumerism and how we can do better is to buy from small businesses. Like I've said this before, say it again, 97% of the profits made globally selling clothing and shoes and accessories to you are made by 20 companies. And these companies are massive. I know that's disgusting. These companies are massive. The people who work there are super out of touch. They don't have that empathy that we were talking about earlier. And you do not need to be giving your money to them. If we're ever going to change the status quo for how things are sold to us, what's sold to us, what we buy – we need to stop giving money to these big companies and we need to support small businesses. I mean, that's just how it is. It's true. And I would say like to go like a little deeper into just like your personal relationship with buying and how that can be Mm -hmm. in the future. Like, I think what I keep coming back to is this feeling like, I think you've talked about it on the show sometimes about how like one, um, kind of check that you put yourself put on yourself is that you'll like open the window and select the item and like leave it there and not buy the item not press buy right away Mm -hmm. because I do think that like giving yourself just like that little bit of space just to like sleep on it can really do wonders Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I mean sometimes it's not possible because like there is that element of like um, treasure hunting like if you're at a thrift store or something you might just have to be like okay like it's now or never yeah yeah that's true that's true I mean if you're in a thrift yeah. store or you know out in the wild like that I get it but I do and we talk about all the emotional reasons that we buy stuff mm-hmm. that's that's what's just it is that most of our purchases are driven by emotions and if we can just take that emotion out a little bit We're going to end up with less stuff that we don't love. We're going to end up with less disappointment. We're going to end up with more money, actually. And uh, we'll be able to use that money to buy better things that are going to last us longer. 
Yeah. Or to maintain the things that we have that we really love and want to, you know. That's right. Because mending, uh, tailoring, cobblers, Mm -hmm. hat repair people, their services aren't cheap because they're highly skilled. They are. They're specialized. And like the other thing about it, too, is just like thinking about the the emotional drive to buy things. I mean, we talk a lot about eating our feelings. We definitely buy our feelings, too, like all Mm, the time. Totally. 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 I was thinking about that. I mean, speaking of the election, the common thread on my social media feed and messages from my friends is that everybody's living on pizza and baked goods Mm -hmm. right now. And I was kind of wondering, are people also buying lots of dumb shit? Mm. You know, because this is a crazy time. Yes. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we did go to the grocery store and buy basically just cake and donuts. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I was wondering, I don't know, like it's, Is fashion getting a lift from this? A little boost. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've I've like when I think about my own consuming habits just in the past, you know, sort of forty-eight hours since it happened. um, (laughs) I did decide while I was having my kind of like simplicity of shoes moment that I'm gonna like really. I think my my sort of my own sort of like winter spring or like autumn winter. story that I'm leaning into is that I'm this kind of like I'm a little bit of a cave woman but I think I'm also Mediterranean or maybe Alpine (laughs) and (laughs) wow a big part of that like basically like my ideal man has has been for some time now Utsi the Iceman like he's just got it all you know he's got like a little pouch of mushrooms he's got all these cool little like acupuncture charcoal tattoos um, he's just like, he's a simple guy, you know, he's just out walking in the Alps and, and then he ended up frozen for thousands of years, but I can respect that. And so I, but I imagine myself, I'm like kind of living in like one of those caves from like the Joni Mitchell song. And I've just got like my red wine with me and I'm like, you know, it's red wine. Like that's where my money's going, not drinking beer. I did a lot of bitters mm-hmm. and soda over the, over the hot season But I'm also, it's interesting because like even my relationship with drinking wine, I think like I've put through like a bit of a a capitalist um, fool's hero journey (laughs) where like this time (laughs) last year I was working in like an upscale wine shop and it like clothing and like slow food, like you can spend a lot of money on your wine because Mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is like, like food, there is an element there of like, there's a reason why it costs that much. And like, you know, handmade clothing, there's a reason why it costs that much, but you can just like get so lost in the story of this, you know, like esoteric Swiss man who has to like, you know, kind of pick his way up (laughs) a hill like a little goat and like tend to his you know like vines that were planted by the romans you know just shit like that which yeah yeah but also like the thing that the psychedelic experience has shown me is that like it's your own brain like that's the trick it's actually all coming from your own brain none of this shit exists because someone else told you the story it's like if you can imagine the story you can dream up the story you can have that experience without buying anything you know it's like it's all its own experience unto itself um you don't necessarily have to buy the thing or drink the wine right there i mean guys that's your new marching order okay like you just nailed it <laughs> thank you jillian for dropping acid so the rest of us don't have to you know, you're doing all the heavy lifting for us. <laughs> well, I think you 
what can I You're say? You're really a giver. <laughs> Whatever You're a real takes. giver. So <laughs> I'm a giver. <laughs> the last thing we're going to talk about uh, is something that Jillian and I started riffing on and we just couldn't stop talking about, which is brunch culture as an analog for fast fashion. <laughs> and it's like, Mm-hmm. Oh, I have so many feelings here. So why don't you jump in? Because you you had a lot of – I mean, I know you you have – there's something in all caps typed in here that you really summarizes it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really hot off the mark on this one, Amanda. Um, so, I mean, the, the basics are and, – and Amanda knows this about me, and you may all be – um, intuiting this about me. I like a Venn diagram. I find that they're like a really helpful way of like, just kind of like organizing mm-hmm. my thoughts around things and like what it is about some things that like pushes my buttons, rubs me the wrong way or whatever. And so the thing about brunch being like fast fashion, I think can be summarized really um, succinctly in a statement that a friend of mine her ex-husband said um, a few years ago, I'll, I'll drop my friend's name. I don't know if she'll listen to this episode or not, but um, my friend Miranda and her husband, Ben, one day were, um, I forget if they were actually like having breakfast or somehow like got on the topic of it. And Ben was just like, almost like with tears in his eyes, I think just with like the humor and like just the absurdity of the revelation as it occurred to him, he was just like pancakes are pure profit. <laughs> Which... They are <laughs> like they're what are they? They're like flour, sugar, like some water. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like the cheapest ingredients. And when you and I started talking about it, we were like, "Wait, eggs are super cheap. Flour, a little bit of cheese. I mean, basically everything you're eating at brunch is like the cheapest food you can buy, but you're out paying a premium for it, and you're Instagramming it the whole time." <laughs> Yeah. And meanwhile, you're, you're like putting all this hype on the experience because brunch, particularly in, in urban settings, it is this sort of like competitive sport. <laughs> like, you know, it's all about like, well, you know, it's like, oh, well, so how many people are going to be? And like, oh, you know, like, and then the, the, there seemed to be this phenomena for a while where like brunching parties would sort of like expand and balloon and like someone would sort of like show up you know because everyone's sort of like the idea is you're rolling out of bed and like you're you're hungover and you're hungry and you want your brunch and so the next thing you know you got like a party of nine and you're standing outside for two hours it's like trying to get ramen or something it is it is and and everybody's hemming and hawing and fretting about like getting there early enough who's going to wait in line what if they won't seat you if the whole party's not there and there's all this furious text messaging and you're starving by the time you sit down Tempest in a teacup. And also like another um, another cheap thing that happens at brunch is the bottomless mimosa. You know they're putting like fucking Andre in that shit. Oh, you know, not, I mean, <laughs> that's not <laughs> I've never had a bottomless mimosa that didn't give me a raging headache. Like oh, geez, yeah. uh, make me feel like garbage for the rest of the day. I it's like this consumer experience that is supposed to it's like supposed to be like an essential experience of a good a good lifestyle a life well lived is just like so disappointing Mm -hmm. and when you realize that you could make pancakes for a buck at home 
It's like oh, you can make you can make yourself a tall stack for a buck. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It reminds me also like I was at, and I feel this way kind of about all breakfast foods, eating all breakfast foods out in the world, unless it's like a weird thing where you're like away from home traveling and you like need you know like a muffin with an egg on Do it. Like, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. But like, but yeah, the idea, like, I know I make good eggs and I eat them every single morning. So like, why the fuck would I spend like $17 for that shit? And like, I was at um, a place when I was up in the Bay visiting recently and someone was like, oh, you should try their oatmeal. And I was like, why the fuck would Stop. I buy oatmeal? Why? Like, oatmeal <laughs> is like the easiest thing to make at home. And you can buy a huge, like a pound of oatmeal for like three bucks. Like why? I mean, in Scotland, the the um, nickname for prison is porridge because that's what you eat when you're in prison. It's yeah, like, yeah. Like the, the rage of like the eight dollar toast that came out in the Bay recently, and like I remember uh. when I was working in um, in a food service position last year they would do these like $8 single portion yogurt parfaits. And there was this guy Stop. who was such a dickhead and he would always get it every single day. He would get one. And he was always such a little princess about it. And he'd be like, Oh, is this one from like the, the freshest batch? And I was like, bitch, you know that for $10, you could be eating yogurt parfaits <laughs> in the comfort of your own I home mean, for like a week. <laughs> yeah, it's just like- I mean, that's that guy is spending two hundred and forty dollars each month on a yogurt parfait. Like, what? <laughs> I, I'm, I, you know, I'm way too like working class to be okay with that. Sorry, I know, I know. And I'm sorry to if we're shaming anybody about their parfait consumption right now, but like, hopefully this is unlocking something in your brain. Like, once again, this is a metaphor. For all the other shit we're consuming, especially fast fashion. So yeah. fast fashion, it's always disappointing. It's not the best ingredients, right? It's not the best experience. It might not fit you that well. You don't feel great after you did it. Maybe you got to post on Instagram in the process. Like you pointed out, Jillian, that it projects this idea of like an aspirational lifestyle. Like look at me. I eat breakfast midday for hours. Outside of my house. <laughs> yes, with others. And I think I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but maybe I haven't. But back in my Nasty Gal days, we literally had a meeting to talk about how girls wanted to wear a new dress they, every time they went to brunch mm. and that we needed to build a brunch dress assortment. This really happened to me. I really oh, I'm so sorry. Went, <laughs> I really went to showrooms looking for brunch clothing. I <laughs> and that was when I was already like, I think brunch kind of sucks. Like <laughs> hashtag buyer's life, guys. Okay. <laughs> so oh, I I feel like brunch is not only a metaphor for fast fashion, they're like tied together mm. you know they're traveling it's buddies an, it's an unholy union <laughs> yeah it's like you can't have one without the other the other thing about brunch is that I really feel like in the past certainly for me I feel like I've gotten pretty radical and political in my um disdain for brunch because for me and I don't know how it is in other places but I I live in an unspecified portion of LA <laughs> <laughs> and I really like 
I associate in my mind brunch with the ethos of the people who quote unquote are looking forward to going back to normal after COVID. Oh my God. Thank you. Because I really do. And like, I was talking about it and like, I, I came to it, like you were sort of saying, and I think maybe this is like more of a zeitgeist than we realize. And maybe you'll get, you know, maybe your inbox will be flooded and your voicemail will just be like singing with people <laughs> in this. But I was, because I, I was going on this bike ride um, around my town and it was just sort of like, I'd loop here and loop there. And I was absolutely floored like right at that point that I think we we in California were referring to as like the second wave of COVID which was kind of around like June I think it was sort of like late June early July it was when my roommates both got it (laughs) and and there's a direct correlation between brunch and Instagram photos of food and my roommate Mm -hmm. getting COVID like there was like a literal cause and effect (laughs) of like seeing their co-workers out eating brunch and then everybody at their job got it um but yeah Yeah. they're like putting the tables out they're not really well spaced nobody's wearing a mask we're all fucking standing in line it's just you know it's like an absolute it's like when those children get chicken pox and all their hippie moms throw a party to give everyone chicken pox but for covid Mm -hmm. that's brunch it's a petri dish and so i was really like passionately like i should just be like fuck your brunch you guys i should like put a banner on the back of my bike and just be like fuck all your brunch and then my friend who's been really involved with a lot of direct action and a lot of the protests here in town was like oh we like marched down one of these streets one day just shouting fuck your brunch and I was like yes <laughs> yes that's how I feel and I love it's, that like this whole other group of people came to that as well <laughs> I mean I I love it because you're right I know in LA restaurants are only open for outside dining right mm-hmm. yeah correct okay so or, like takeaway of course here in Pennsylvania I want to say indoor dining started, well, depending on where you lived because there were all these zones. But in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. it was like the first week of October. Out here in Lancaster County where I live now, I think it's been going on for a long time. And immediately brunch was going off. I suddenly started seeing tons of brunch photos on Instagram. And I do think like these people who love brunch are the people who are like, I hope everything goes back to normal after this. And you know what? I don't want everything to go back to normal after all this because as we touched on when we began recording this episode, things have been going badly for a long time. This is our chance Mm -hmm. to say, hey, finally I see how rotten everything is. Let's do better. Blindly being like, oh, I got to put on my brunch dress and go out to brunch kind of shoves that all back under the rug and I don't like it. Neither do I. And I actually speaking of the word aspirational, I had this talk with the woman who um, was cutting my hair like about a month or so ago. And I think what I said to her, cause she was saying how, you know, like she's been doing all these different things and like, she's really like felt her eyes open to um, all of these flaws in the system that she is very like passionate about finding solutions mm-hmm. to and like supporting and, And then I said to her, I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's like the least aspirational thing in the world to go back to quote unquote, the way things were like, I just, I I feel like that's like, in a way that's like the little sister of make America great again. (laughs) It is, it is. (laughs) Because it's this sort of like 
people that exist in such a bubble of privilege that either like COVID just didn't happen to them in the same way that it happened to the people that are systemically the most underserved people in this country Mm -hmm. and world, Mm -hmm. like just that, like, yeah, I just don't know how you could. I mean, it, it feels like as if somebody had like, you know, gone through an entire like transformational experience, like, you know, anything. And that the idea that like your takeaway from that is like, okay, cool. Can I like go back to what I was doing before? Yeah. Like, that's just, no, Uh, no, that's not what that I do. I do think wanting to things to go back to how they were slash going out to brunch is such a hallmark of privilege right now. It is. And I see people who are still even in the midst of this trying to live as if nothing happened. I see people going on vacation. Okay. Getting on planes going somewhere warm, going to the Caribbean, going overseas. I see people having Halloween parties. Oh, that was huge. Like this past week, there was uh, like the, one of the lesser Kardashian little ones had the party that was like at some hotel in um, in LA and they, they nobody was wearing a mask. It, it's just like, it really does feel like let them eat cake style shit where you're just like, okay, I get it. Everybody's tired of, you know, having to wear masks all the time in public. Everyone's tired of like, you know, having to stay home all the time, but that doesn't yeah. mean yeah. that you can like throw your money at this and just like rub it in everyone else's faces that you don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's something so weird and like, old-timey about just wanting things to go back to normal and living life like nothing's happening. And those pe- the people who are doing that, I mean, I hate to say this, but they're, like, not cool. <laughs> they're not cool. And, I mean, also, I think it's, like, fundamentally the idea of things going back to anything is just not actually how, like, nature works. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Think- even when you talk about things being like back to nature, quote unquote, or being like reclaimed by nature, it's just like everything is always evolving. Everything is always like I, I feel like we go through these cycles where like there's cycles of sort of stability and then there's cycles where things like naturally grow out of proportion to like what is sustainable. And then there's like a correction or an overcorrection and there's upheaval. Like I think the the idea that like people seem to think that they're entitled to like live in like this constant lap of plenty of this, whatever fucking quote unquote American dream is just short sighted. And it, it doesn't actually like reflect the nature of like the reality of a lived experience as like yeah. <laughs> organisms. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally, totally. I feel like, Today, sitting around and saying, I can't wait to go out to brunch, or I'm still living as if I can go out to brunch and go on vacation, I can't wait for things to go back to normal, is the equivalent of being that, like, stodgy parent in the 50s who got mad that your kid was listening to rock music. Oh, yeah, totally, completely. do you want to be on the wrong side of history? Because that's where you are right now. Yeah, do you you want to be, like, scandalized by Elvis's hips? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but it's like... (laughs) The irony of this whole thing is that like a lot of times in the past when we've seen people be on the wrong side of history and being stodgy and stubborn and old timey, it's because they were old. But I see like 25-year-olds, 
30-year-olds, 35-year-olds doing this bullshit right now. And I'm just like, God, yeah. you seem like such a dinosaur to me now. Like, I mm -hmm. just – you're, like, not part of this new world we're going to have when this is over. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's, that's uh, There you go. Now you guys know how judgy I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think – I think that's true. Like just, I think I personally have been like throughout my experience, like of the life of being an adult and like kind of having come out into the world during a recession and having sort of been in the swim and navigated like all these sort of like pitfalls of the, the gig quote unquote economy and like being in the Bay area where there's a lot of the like disruption for disruption's sake, or like, I mean, really just creating this kind of bizarro world where everybody just like sits at home and like has shit done for them. Like I was listening to a podcast ad for like one of those services that does, um, grocery shopping for you I don't know there's like a few of them mm -hmm. but what really struck me about the ad was that it reminded me of those old task rabbit ads that there used to be where it was basically like hey get someone else to do this thing for you so that you have more time to like one of the examples was literally like use a filter on your phone to see how you'd look with bangs and I'm like is that really like that's what you like like that's why you need someone to do this thing for you so that you have more time to like oh my god that is so <laughs> gross it's so gross and it's just like is this real like is this not just a huge can you not see what like a preposterous joke that is oh god i hate everyone like i said <laughs> so We've been recording for almost three hours now. We have. You've got your work cut out for you. I know. I definitely do. Is there any last parting thoughts you would like to leave with our listeners as our special guest? Oh. Um, no pressure or anything. Yeah. I mean, I think what I – how I'm personally trying to um, to live with this <laughs> and kind of like just – alter my behavior or I, I think for me it's it's really about um about being present which is like a very um you know loaded sort of wellness word or whatever <laughs> but I but I do I do think there's really something to it because I think when you're like living in the here and now of what's happening you have that kind of perceptive ability where you can look at what you're seeing and like see it for what it is instead of being sort of like dazzled and glamored by all of like the flim flam and the smoke and mirrors, which have really just been having a field day for so long. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think I'm about like things that feel like authentic and real. And, um, and if what that looks like is like spending a lot of time with my cats, like that doesn't cost a thing, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Right, right, right. Oh, I love that. I think yeah. that's really important. And oh, and the other thing I was going to say really quickly, just for like my advice to people who are like trying to build, you know, like they're build an aesthetic that feels like fresh and um, like they're expressing themselves while also not kind of like falling into the trap of all of the um, the hoopla around it is I told you this in an, uh, one of the text messages. Like, I think it's a really fun thought experiment to like, you know, people make avatars of themselves all the time on their phones and for various things. Mm -hmm. Like what if like 
you were like a comic book character and you know comic book characters like pretty much always wear the same thing like Jughead or <laughs> Veronica or whatever <laughs> um obviously or the Silver Surfer he always wears the same thing um but like what if you were like what would that look like and then really you don't need to buy that much shit because once you I think once you reach a certain like number of objects of clothing like enough clothing that you can like wear something different each day of the week and then wash it then you're just getting into volume you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like what is the yeah. what is like the core of you and rather than trying to get like 19 different versions of riffs on that thing just get like really that thing you know and then it's so what if like if you become the person who's like always wearing like fanciful leggings or like like whatever your thing is like there's no shame in like having a thing that other people aren't into like you don't have to look like everyone else like I think it really is about just like finding what feels like appropriate to like how you want to feel in your clothes and like how you like the idea of yourself looking and like that is what style is you know Mm -hmm, like when mm -hmm. you see those like real old ladies in New York who aren't wearing anything that you'd see on a runway or in a Hot Topic or in, you know, a Forever 21, but everybody is just like drooling over them because they're like, they're so stylish. They just don't care what anyone thinks. Like that, that's the key, I think, is to like find what what works for you. And once you do, I, I think the rest sort of follows. But I think it's it's a matter of like sort of like honing in on how your identity kind of like crosses and cross hatches with your clothing is. Right. Right. Figure out who you are and just run with that. Yeah. For real. Trends are just tools to make you buy things. So you don't need to think about that. Think about like who you want to be, who you are right now, who you want the world to think you are, but don't, don't go out there and think you have to be thin and rich and wearing expensive clothing. Well, and that was the other thing I was just about to to touch on is like, I think it begins with fit is really key. Because like when we talk mm-hmm. about like tailoring and things like that, like many's the time there's been a piece of clothing that like theoretically I think is cool or I think I would love. <laughs> and then I put it on my body and it's just like, you got to know like what your body, like you, you have to like live reality on reality's terms with your body and be like you know like and there's all sorts I mean obviously people do like aspire to be more fit people aspire and ideally that should be like the only real reason you're like changing your diet or your exercise is because you want to like feel healthier or you want to feel stronger you know it shouldn't be about how you end up looking that should be secondary but Mm -hmm. the truth is like you know like you've had people on like your your friend who did fit like sometimes you like look pretty regular but your like butt is strangely disproportionately small or large or whatever and there's like there's clothing for that there's such a plethora of clothing that you can like find the thing that like is satisfactory on like work with what you've got and then Mm -hmm. that like that naturally becomes stylish because people see it and they're like oh their clothes just look like they look comfortable in those clothes like they look like they can like perform tasks <laughs> and also yeah, like yeah. there's like a little more going into it than just purely utilitarian or if like purely utilitarian is your kink then just like ride it yeah yeah and if you there is something that you find that you're like okay this doesn't fit my body but I am obsessed with this and this is who I am get it tailored yeah because when you get it fitted to you it becomes almost custom for you mm-hmm. and you're gonna keep it a lot longer 
Yeah, you're going to have such a relationship with that garment. And I think that's also, like, I mean, it's too late in the game to start talking about like relationships in this field of like talking about the things and like the binging and the purging and the regret <laughs> and like yes but all like it, it's true though like it's like if you think of like fast fashion it's like a, a unsatisfactory one night stand that then just kind of like sits in a corner of your room and haunts you, <laughs> you know? Uh, I know it's true like what if you picked up some guy at brunch because you had too many bottomless mimosas and you brought him home and it was all all around kind of unsatisfactory uh what if he then stayed there in the corner or in your closet like a, for six like months? A ghost. Like, yeah. That's how it feels though. Whereas like, what if there's someone and you meet them and like you jive and like, it just, you know, everything just like feels real good. And then like, yeah, you do want to wear that every day or you do want to wear like, you know, that or something just like it or the, the things that just like feel like your family. Like you, you do spend probably more time with your clothes than you do with like, maybe your partner so like shouldn't you feel as like attached <laughs> to them as you do to your partner I think so yeah 100 percent 100 percent well thank you so much Jillian this was so fun thank you for having me Amanda this has been fun Thanks again to Jillian for being a lovely friend and the best person I can imagine to join me in this dialogue about consumerism and, you know, dropping acid on election day to get all these insights for us. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get to have her back again sometime soon. I hope you will take her idea of dressing as your own comic book character to heart because as I was editing this episode and listening to our conversation again, it made me think a lot about my character. Like, I guess she would wear a lot of puff sleeve maxi and midi dresses, usually printed, a big hat, some practical shoes, of course, a huge crystal necklace. That's who I am. And when I've tried to say, oh, I'm going to get into jeans now, or maybe I'm minimalist, both of these have happened. It just felt like a costume and I never wore that stuff again. I ended up selling it on Poshmark or just kind of sitting on it until the next time I moved and then I gave it away. In a world full of trends and like infinite numbers of clothes, shoes, and accessories, it's kind of nice to have some goalposts that are emblazoned with your name. And the only things that get to go through there are the ones that fit with your character. It's almost like, wait a minute, part of being better consumers of being conscious consumers is understanding ourselves better. I think I'm onto something here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Just a reminder to check out the Clothes Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge on Instagram. If you plan on buying gifts, and seriously, you do not have to, please remember how powerful your money is. So spend it where it makes a difference. Buy from local small businesses or buy secondhand. I know that the smaller businesses can be a lot harder to find on your own because you know they don't have big marketing budgets. They're not serving you tons of Instagram ads every day. So once again, I'm just going to shout out Gooder Gift Guide. That's Gooder Gift Guide on Instagram. They launched on Black Friday. They've been sharing all kinds of suggestions from small businesses all over and basically for every kind of gift recipient that you can imagine. So check them out. And remember, 
the best gifts don't come from assholes. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You are probably already like reciting that along with me. Also, tell your friends, you know what? We're so close to 10,000 downloads, which is such a big deal. I'm so excited. So clearly all of your recommendations are paying off. All of your awesome friends are binging and then telling their friends. So let's keep up the good work. I'm planning a special giveaway. It's inspired by my conversation with Jillian. And when we cross that threshold, I'll be sharing some details with you about what it is and how you can be a part of it. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I'm not kidding where one post this week had so many likes and so many shares that Instagram thought I was buying followers and likes and they disabled our account for a while. Isn't that crazy? So if you messaged me on Instagram in the past few days and you didn't get a response, it probably just didn't come to me. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on with my notifications. So just write me again. I promise I'll get right back to you. By the way, if you ever want me to share a source for the information I'm providing here or on the Instagram, as always, I've got you. I have it all stacked up, well, virtually, in my bookmarks folder. And so if you need that information just to, you know, convince someone else of the information or for a paper for school or just because you want to read some new stuff, just reach out to me and I will share it all with you. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Close Horse? Drop me a line at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or like I said, you can DM me via Instagram at closehorsepodcast. And if you have a question, no matter how complicated or confusing or huge it is, hit me up because I love a research project. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link to that in the show notes too. We've been sharing some interesting stuff lately and having a conversation about Lolita culture and how consumerist it is. So you don't want to miss out. And I'm just going to say it again. Don't forget the Close Horse Hotline. It's the best thing ever. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call, even if you just want to say hi, talk about something the show made you think about. Those are kind of my favorite messages. Ask me a question. Tell me what you're doing for the holidays. Tell me a story. Talk about your collections. I love it when you call me, so do it. And if you just can't get enough of hearing me talk, <laughs> I mean, who couldn't, right? <laughs> Don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim, and we talk about trends, taste, all kinds of super weird and funny stories. This week is part two of our Tragic Trends deep dive, and it's about hashtag girlboss, which we both have a lot of personal experience with, so check it out. I think you're going to love it. I think it's a great way to jump into the department. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. <laughs>